Hello and welcome to another Dairy Dialogue podcast, this being number 71, and it comes hot on the heels of the previous one because as this goes live on Wednesday, I shall hopefully be on a plane from Paris to Glasgow, loaded with interviews from the Salon de l'Agriculture and the Salon de Fromage, which means this was actually recorded on Friday before I left. Even I'm confused now. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and it doesn't take much to confuse me, I must admit. As there are only two days between the last podcast and this one in terms of its recording, it didn't really seem right to ask Liam Fenton from INTLFC Stone to give us a weekly market update after just two days. So Liam will be back next week. I was going to say in two days there's no news to talk about, but there is. There's been one issue of Dairy Reporter before Friday, plus a few articles we've already got written for Monday and Tuesday of next week. So there will be some news. At the risk of sounding repetitive, I'm just going to give a brief plug for the live hour-long webinar coming up on March the 12th on sustainability and environmentally friendly dairy products, and say that if you haven't registered already, please head on over to dairyreporter.com and register. It's relatively quick, and the bonus is the webinar is free. So who is on the show this week? Well, we have three interviews. We chatted to David Boulanger, Senior Vice President of Operations at Danone Special Nutrition, about their new Track and Connect service for infant formula. Ryan LaRanger, Project Architect at Prescouter, about zero-waste technologies and the circular economy. And to Alicia Monday, Global Marketing Manager at Freneri, about Roar, a new plant-based ice cream alternative that has hit the market in the UK. All right, to the news. Soma Detect has partnered with Valley Agricultural Software, A trade deal with India might not happen on the U.S. president's upcoming visit. U.K. retailer Tesco says kefir is taking off. Arla published its financials, which show sales are up and it's going to be investing. In the U.K., Yakult Light is now being reformulated with vitamins D and E added. And Valio has introduced its Carbo Farm calculator to help lower farmers' CO2 emissions. Baltic dairy farmers have been protesting about the price of milk in Brussels. And by that, I mean they're protesting in Brussels about how much they get for their milk. They aren't protesting about how much milk costs in Brussels. Speaking of complaints, the Royal Association of British Dairy Farmers and the NFU have both foist their displeasure at the UK government's new points-based immigration plans because of the effect they could have on the dairy industry. At the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission says it will not oppose the proposed acquisition of Lion Dairy and Drinks by Mengyu. So, actually quite a few stories, all of which and a few more can be found on DairyReporter.com. As seems to be the pattern with the podcast recently... There's one longer interview today, and it could have been longer still. So I'll get right to the first one, which is about a new product in the UK and parts of Europe. And that's a plant-based ice cream alternative called Roar, with a Norwegian accent to boot. 
I'll probably never be able to mention his name again in a dairy podcast, so I'm going to say it. The boxer Anthony Joshua is a brand ambassador for the product, which comes in three flavors, and whichever one he chooses, I'm not going to argue with him. There's also a conservation angle in that the product's maker, Froneri, has connected on a project to help save endangered tigers, which is also a great thing. To tell us more is Alicia Monde, Global Marketing Manager at Froneri. How long has the new product been in the works? Uh, about a year and a half now we've been working on it. It's taken a long time um, to just develop the flavors. It's not easy to make a plant-based product that tastes really indulgent, really creamy. There are a lot on the market we found that probably weren't delivering and um, we wanted to make sure that if we were going to launch something we wanted it to taste the absolute best it could be no compromise it just has to be as good as any other super premium ice cream that you eat the bonus is that it's plant-based so that's what we focused on and that took a lot of time our NPD team spent a lot of time perfecting the flavors I assume that you can't approach them the same way as you would with a dairy ice cream no, there's a, it's, there's a lot of complexity and a lot of the things that you use to make a dairy ice cream are what give it that creamy texture in the mouth and a lot of those are missing when you um, have to work with plant-based ice cream. So, you know, getting the right hazelnut paste to create that smooth and really rich taste as well as coconut milk and all those substitutes that are as natural as possible and as real and raw as possible to get that flavour to come through that you would expect. I think that one thing that stands out with these particular products is that often when vegan ice cream alternatives come out onto the market, your choice is chocolate or vanilla. Exactly. So here, and here you have <laughs> some different flavors that was the intent of that, that people would want to try them regardless of whether they're plant-based? Yes, exactly. So for us, it was about a real and raw, textured, layered experience. So for us, you know, at first people were asking, oh, are you going to just do a vanilla? But for us, that's not real and raw and doesn't give you all those layers of flavor um, that we wanted to deliver. We wanted this to be really indulgent. So that's why we uh, focused on these really unique flavors where you had big, crunchy hazelnuts or big oat cookies. So you get that textural difference in your mouth as you enjoyed through the ice cream. But then the oat cookie just is balanced by this really fresh um, mango, passion fruit, lemon taste, and then the, the creamy coconut base. So by focusing on building one like complete story in each tub that you is kind of interesting as you work your way through, it just doesn't taste boring. It's really fun and exciting to eat like super premium products are. And I think one of the problems with the products lately has been that because plant-based has taken off so quickly, companies seem to feel that they have to have something out there so they'll just put out anything so that they can say it's vegan. When you come up with something like this, then it's clear that more thought has gone into it than just we've got to do something that's vegan because that's popular right now. Absolutely. We started this all with a consumer insight. So the amount of people that are becoming flexitarian. So it wasn't even really a thought about, oh, let's appeal to vegans. It was about, hey, there's this big shift in the way people are looking at food um, and there's a way that they want to eat. And, you know, people still want to enjoy a hamburger, but at the same time, they're trying to make other choices, trying to put more plant-based foods into their diet because they're hearing the things on the news 
they're hearing things about the environment. So they're aware and they want to do things, but um, you know they don't they don't have to be one way or the other. So for us, it was about making something that appeals no matter what your food preference is, whether you're vegan, whether you're flexitarian, or whether you just enjoy really good ice cream. And you mentioned the flexitarian angle. I think something that's interesting is that for people that are on a plant-based diet or that are vegan, a lot of the time they're just happy to have any product that is vegan. Whereas you mentioned flexitarians, they certainly are going to expect their product to taste exactly the same as the dairy version. Well, there's a lot of different offers available. So there are offers that are high protein or low fat or low calorie or for us, this is about as close to real and raw flavors um, as possible that's plant-based. So for us, we just wanted to really focus on delivering a delicious plant-based option. Um, there is, um, when people say healthy or healthy ice cream, there's like a number of things that that could mean. So we really wanted to focus in on what's important to us and the real, the raw and the plant-based. And through that, we have some of our other claims um, working with the UTZ and the Rainforest Alliance. The cocoa we use for this particular product, we chose not to use palm oil given the environment of the tigers, although we support um, the RSPO, obviously. So these are the things that we wanted to think about what this brand should be about um, and stick to what we wanted it to be, which is, you know, the feedback that we've been getting. People are just Really, it really is appealing to. And you're also giving back because of the charity partnership. Could you give me some details on what that involves? Yes. Yeah, so when we were working on it, the focus being real and raw as our, what we wanted to own. And every time we'd say raw, when we were working on it, someone would go raw. <laughs> so we kind of started laughing. We, we talked about it when we were developing the packaging and then the tiger just became this symbol of what everybody was really feeling for this brand, this passion and this courage to try something new and different and be really focused. So when we saw the tiger, we were so like, that's it, that's perfect for this brand. And then just naturally from that we said well why don't if we're going to make it our hero why don't we actually give back and we spoke to our partner Panthera and quite shockingly heard um, about only uh, 3,900 tigers are left in the world but I think once we talked about that while we were working on the product we just felt really passionately that we should incorporate that as a part of who we are and and our brand and what we stand for and I know everybody who's worked on this brand, like that's probably their favorite part about the brand is that ability to give back and maybe make a difference uh, to tiger populations. How is that done? That's a percentage of sales? No, so we donate no matter what. So we didn't want it to be based on people who had to buy in order for us to donate. We're going to donate no matter what. And a big part of what we're hoping is, you know, this. we hope that this brand just continues to grow and flourish. And as it does, we will continue to increase what we do with Panthera. A big part of what they wanted also from us is the ability to raise awareness and education of the plight of tigers because some people weren't aware, I guess, how critically endangered they are. So for them, us talking about it on our social channels, talking about it in our advertising, that is also really of big importance to them um, as well. Where is it available currently? Is it already been launched? Um, and I know it's in Finland. They had their launch just recently. Um, and we're going into Tesco on from March 16th. So we're looking forward to that. And is it going into other countries as well? 
Germany and France, we will also be going into. And I suppose that once people do start commenting on it, you'll get about 15,000 suggestions for new flavors for it as well. <laughs> exactly. We, at the launch last night, we already had people asking what the new flavors would be, which we kind of are working on, but still top secret. Our next guest is David Boulanger, Senior Vice President of Operations at Danone Specialized Nutrition, and we chatted with him about the company's interesting new Track and Connect service for baby formula. Could you give us some background on Track and Connect? Yeah, uh, well, based on what we hear uh, in the different markets we operate from the different consumers or our different partners, retailers, uh, there is a growing interest from our consumers and parents to know more and more about the food that they consume, and especially in the baby formula uh, uh, nutrition, uh, you can imagine that this is highly important for the parents to guarantee that the food they give to their babies is the highest quality possible. And so we thought we would develop this service to give as much information as possible to the consumers uh, to know about uh, where the ingredients are coming from, how the product were produced, and also to guarantee the authenticity of the product they, they give to their babies. Uh, Besides that, uh, we believe it's also a way to engage with the consumers, of, of course, if they want to, to provide services of after-sales support in order to give the best nutritional advice to, uh, to the parents uh, when they feed their babies. Is this a two-way program that could potentially be used in things like loyalty programs? It, it works both ways. It's not based on loyalty because we, we obviously are very cautious about that. But it's, if the parents want to engage into more specialized advice, they can provide additional information and then we will provide uh, uh, some support or some expertise from our Danone experts in order to, to advise them on the best way to feed their babies because sometimes babies have specific uh, uh, or special conditions and need to be uh, treated uh, very specifically. And and how does it actually work? Is this, Are there two codes on every pack? So imagine you have a pack in your hand and then you have your uh, mobile phone. Uh, we have uh, two codes printed on the pack, one on the outer case of the pack, which will give you uh, some information about uh, the different uh, uh, steps in the supply chain to, to, to reach the consumer. Uh, this is uh, powered by blockchain technology uh, where we have uh, connected the different players in our supply chain in order to be able to provide uh, the information uh, of this uh, unique pack uh, that has been produced in one of our factories and all the steps that have been engaged to, uh, to, 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 for this pack to be delivered to, the, uh, to, the, to, to our consumers. And then you will find also a second QR code, which is uh, also unique, uh, which will be on the inner side of the pack, which uh, as soon as this is scanned will guarantee the authenticity of the, of the product because this is a code that can be scanned only once. Uh, and, uh, and those two combination of those codes will, uh, will uh, give uh, also as much as information as possible to our consumers. And then we potentially, if the consumer wants or the parents want to engage in a dialogue, uh, with uh, with uh, the Danone community to provide additional uh, services or advices. So it, it's very good, not just for information. It's also peace of mind for the consumer to know that it's not been tampered with. Exactly. That's 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 one of the uh, purpose of the solution we've developed. And how long did it take to develop? 
Yes, this is something that we are we have been developing in house. Uh, we have uh, we have started this program. Uh, let's say uh, I would say 18 months ago. Uh, you need to imagine that we needed to equip all our factories and to connect uh, different players in our different supply chain. So this is a, a, a long program, and and it's not. 100% over, we will continue to enrich our blockchain in order to provide more and more information to our different uh, consumers. Considering this is something that's being rolled out in different places, it must have presented some challenges in terms of language and different regions and, and those kind of things. Well, that was one of the biggest challenges. There is no point to do that in only one uh, one factory because many factories source one country so when we go live uh, we go live with the whole range which means we need to equip our total supply chain in order to provide the same service to all our consumers in one specific market and, and it's being launched first in china it's been launched uh, as we speak in china uh, germany netherlands france australia and new zealand uh, we selected those markets because we believe those markets are where the consumers maybe the most sensitive. We're going to look at how the consumers, how the parents welcome this offer and potentially roll out in some additional countries later on. And when will you start to see data coming in from this? Are we already starting to see some data? We are tracking uh, basically what we receive. It's still early stage, but we see how many scans parents do and the purpose is to listen to what's happening in the in the different uh, markets in order to enhance the service we provide to the different parents in those countries. When you start a program like this, it must be both rewarding and exciting to see data starting to come in. Yeah, exactly. And it's something which is powered by the new uh, digital technologies. And I, I do believe we have not yet found the whole potential of it. So we provide the first set of service, the first set of information, uh, but blockchain, the, the supported by the QR code and different other pieces of technologies will be an enabler to get closer and closer to the parents, and which is in our business something we really want to uh, to do. We serve life, and we want to be as close as possible to the uh, to the parents in terms of uh, providing the best food for their babies. And I suppose one of the other good things about technology like this is that once it's printed you can change the content of what the QR code points to or some of the information that you're providing as opposed to the packaging itself, which you can't change. Well, this is real-time connection with the consumer. So whatever happens, anything new or what, you know, we, we can connect, communicate real-time and engage real-time with the consumers, which is very powerful. And I suppose as you go, you'll be tweaking the app so that it's more meaningful as you get more data coming in. Yes, this is something which has started. We start to provide some information. As I was explaining, blockchain is uh, is there, but you can connect more and more players to the blockchain in order to, to give more and more granular information uh, through the QR code to the consumers in one way. And the other way to collect more and more information from our consumers when they want to in order to provide them the, the best support we can. Of course, here we're specifically talking about the formula products, but is this something that you envisage at some point being applicable to other Danone products? This may be the future. To be honest, this is uh, something we are exploring on the baby food because the, the range of products of Danone where the need is the most important. Uh, you know, when you, when you are a parent and you feed your baby, 
this is probably the most important thing you do for your babies at the beginning of life. Uh, whether we will roll out this uh, full service package on the other range of Danone, uh, to be frank with you, we don't we don't see the urgency or the need at present for more, let's say, adult consumers. But why not? This is a technology we have developed. If there is something that we can we can bring to our consumer all over the world on the other range of products, we have the technology. We can leverage it. It's a good thing technology has advanced to the point where an hour-long conversation with someone on another continent can be done over the internet and not make you panic because it's going to cost a fortune when the next phone bill comes in. I do remember those days with a cold sweat. I could have talked with our next guest for much longer than the hour that we spent online and then I remembered I'd have to edit it. So, in what seems to be our now regular, more in-depth interview, I chatted with Ryan LaRanger, project architect at Prescouter, about zero-waste technology technologies and the circular economy. My name is Ryan LaRanger. I'm a senior project architect at Prescouter. Prescouter is a consulting and intelligence firm whose, call it competitive edge if you like, is that we have an enormous analyst pool, some of whom are full-time and a number of whom are part-time, still in the very end of their PhD program or postdocs who are looking to transition into industry work. And so we have this network of analysts at our disposal, which allows us to tackle very technical consulting questions. And as you know, it's with the rate at which technology is changing, often questions of corporate strategy are beginning to incorporate or need to incorporate an understanding of what's happening now in the academic and the startup world. How is technology changing and how will that impact our business? What does the landscape look like now? And what does the landscape look like in the next five to 10 years? And because that question is becoming increasingly technical, what we do is we bring in experts from at, even at just the analyst level who are experts in their science, who are experts in their field. The project is managed by a consultant, a senior project manager or a technical director. And then what we'll do is we provide a technology landscape and then as need be, we also develop some hypotheses. We provide an initial evaluation of the space. But the next step for us as a rule is to then confirm or refute those hypotheses by a series of rounds of primary research where we go to subject matter experts, members of industry, senior professors, leaders in their field, and ask a series of questions in an interview format in order to get an understanding of how on the mark were we, what elements are we missing, what pricing information matters, and what unknown unknowns exist that might not exist in the secondary literature space yet. And so generally, our work wraps up all of that information. So the secondary research where we're doing a landscape and the primary research where we start confirming or refuting hypotheses into a final report, um, which is generated over a series of intelligence briefs, which effectively informs the client who, and we have clients in an enormous number of fields, about how they can move forward given the answers to the questions that they've asked 
And obviously what's been publicized right now is the fact that you have a new report out. If you could give me a little bit of details on what the report is, because I guess it's something that's not just important for companies, but it's it's an area of great interest to consumers as well. Yeah, packaging is an enormously important space. I mean, climate change is a trend that is being noticed just from a regulatory perspective alone. The report I think you're referring to would be towards a circular economy, zero waste technologies and initiative. So this report focuses on a number of, and this is very in line with the sort of work that we do, especially in the secondary research phase of an engagement, where what we are doing is looking at who are innovators in this space worldwide, who's doing something different, and how do those differences potentially impact their immediate competitors and the space writ large. So recycling or the circular economy is very important from no small measure because governments are saying it is, right? And that is in turn driving a good deal of innovation in the space because there's an increased demand for recyclable materials. There are other elements as well that we can get to in a little while, but what I can do is just walk you through some of the entries, if you like, or elements of the report that I think stand out and can give you an idea of the kinds of companies that we're looking at when we perform this kind of analysis. So in a general sense, a circular economy is important from a consumer perspective because it gives one not only the warm, happy feeling of doing something that's good for the planet, but it allows for better or more functional materials. And I mean, in dairy packaging, we're seeing more of a movement towards efficient packaging. We're seeing more of a movement towards plastic packaging as well, in part because consumers like seeing the little bits of granola that live above their yogurt before they consume them. And you know, those kinds of elements matter from a consumer experience perspective and from a sales perspective. The challenge with that is on the one hand, you have this increased demand for PET packaging for dairy. And on the other hand, you have a, a increased regulatory demand in terms of recyclability of material. Now, often a number of these packaging materials will wind up in landfills. That's problematic from the consumer's perspective, but it's also problematic from the regulatory perspective. And so the companies that we're talking about in this report have found innovative and interesting ways to get around this problem. So uh, one of them in particular, it, this is a company that I found extremely interesting. It's Ionica Technologies. So it's a circular initiative. It's out of the Netherlands. And one of the challenges with recycling in general is not, can you recycle plastic? Of course you can. Uh, the challenge is often separating out good plastic from bad plastic. Now we can talk later about ways to automate this process, but it's still very much a challenge. So the technology that I'll be uh, sharing with you in this moment, Ionica, uh, one of its claims to significance is that it can upcycle all kinds of PET, including colored plastic, almost regardless of their level of quality. And the way that they do that, it's really interesting, is they infuse these PET bottles with a magnetic fluid with a glycol solution. And they depolymerize the PET bottles with heating for about an hour. And then they use magnetic separation to remove the colored materials. 
Now, uh, for those in your audience who are very interested in the PET bale creation and separation of plastics, my sincere hope is that that piece of information alone was very, very interesting because manual separation of colored and non-colored plastics is an enormous hassle. It's mixed PET bales are cheap because no one wants to buy them. Uh, it used to be that China wanted to buy them, but with the National Sword Initiative, basically axed that completely. And the increased cost of labor makes that very challenging. But here, instead of having a person sort through these bales and picking out the uh, colored and the non-colored plastics or having a machine do it, it's done magnetically in the solution. And so uh, this has been pretty impactful so far. One of their big partners is actually Coca-Cola. And you'll actually see this with a lot of these larger drinks companies. They're getting involved on the innovation side with uh, PET processing in no small measure because of some regulations in California that are coming down the pipeline. But Ionica won some awards. Uh, they've established a 10K ton scale-up plant. They've launched a now or no waste movement initiative. And they've partnered also with Indorama Ventures one of their goals is to retrieve marine plastic from Mediterranean seas and beaches. And they already have made the first ever bottle from ocean plastic. Ocean plastic, of course, being that stuff which shows up in documentaries that's floating and is necessarily some of the worst kind of plastic from a recycling perspective. And uh, Coca-Cola should start using some of the bottles that they're making starting in 2020. Yes, because clearly companies are seeing pressure from both sides, from government regulations and also from consumers. So they not only have to be doing something, they also have to be seen to be doing something. Precisely. And I mean, so that set of environments does provide an opportunity, but it means that it's only an opportunity if you pursue it. If you don't, then it's an enormous problem. And so I would say just along these lines, I can just run through Vialia is a bottle to bottle initiative, which is interesting that we go through in the report. In particular, we mentioned for this that their technology eliminates the melting stage of plastics. So this saves about 31,000 tons of oil and 113 tons of CO2 each year. And this is important because if you can do more of this recycling, there is, especially when you start getting to carbon taxing events and so on, there's a real economic savings to be generated there. Some of the other elements that I would say are interesting is there are some bag-to-bag -bag initiatives which are important. There's plastic label recycling, which is important. Danone in particular is doing a real push on this in terms of using Repel's thermofusion technology to recycle some of their plastic labeling. So for instance, Danon Aqua is collaborating with Repel Indonesia to convert their water bottle labels from polypropylene plastic into pallets. And so this is something where they're partnering with local innovative firms, which have really novel and interesting modes to turn mixed plastic waste into pallets. And in the report, we go through this in some more detail, showing the life cycle going from these plastic bottles to something which is uh, then reusable and finally made into these aqua water bottles. Now, th this sort of thing is particularly important because California is looking to mandate that bottles in that state must contain a certain percentage of uh, recycled plastic in the next few years.
And so there are many companies that are working on trying to meet that regulation. The problem being, of course, that if you meet that regulation in California, you sort of necessarily have to do it everywhere. So that may very well increase the demand for recycled plastic, but you need that recycled plastic to be usable. And so groups like Danon working with Repal and some of the other groups we've discussed, discussed like Ionica, the goal with these innovative groups is to make plastic that you've collected from the recycling infrastructure to make sure you don't only have it, but that you can use it and use it as efficiently as possible without needing to engage in what is frankly very expensive and inefficient sorting. And manual sorting for plastic is the worst. The total report has something on the order of 10 or more of these groups. So obviously I don't just want to read you the entire report, but Banyan Nation is interesting in part because it's uh, one of India's first plastic recycling companies. And they have a thermal method which is designed to remove ink coatings and other contaminants. And they have some proprietary processing methods in order to get the raw post-consumer material to a virgin quality state. It brings in the importance of location as well. India doesn't have as robust necessarily a recycling infrastructure as some other places. And so Banyan's making a real impact there, not only because of their really innovative technology, but because there's so much raw material waiting to be used. And so much of their effort is actually based in collaboration with their government in terms of making sure the raw material of that plastic, and there's a lot of it, gets recycled, reused, and put into the circular economy. And they're working with uh, Tata Motors, L'Oreal India, and Intel India, amongst other groups. So with them, it's not just uh, packaging in terms of the plastic bottles you think of, but also electronics, which are an enormous source of various forms of terrible waste. Do you think that companies are collaborating more and being more transparent with their technology, making it available to other companies in order to be able to make a difference? So one thing that's interesting, and this is a really good question, is when I was talking about elements of the report, you'll note every time I said one name you've never heard of and one you definitely have, right? Ionica, never heard of it. Coca-Cola, probably have. It goes on and on throughout the list, right? Velalia, right? Another one that's in the report. Haven't heard of them. You have heard of Danon. So this is, some of my background is actually in the biomedical space. And this is something that we've been seeing in the biomedical or the drug, or the drug development space for years with many pharmaceutical companies getting a good deal of their innovation through working with smaller biotechs. And so I am in no way surprised to see a similar pattern in some of these other industries. Now that, I'm gonna use a phrase that I hate, technological disruption is becoming more mainstream. Because if you think about it, once upon a time, there wasn't nearly as much. You had your set number of SKUs or products on the supermarket shelves, and it was pretty stable especially with the onset of the online marketplace consumers have gotten used to, and this isn't necessarily bad. In fact, I would argue it's good, but they've gotten used to the idea that they can have a product which is precisely made for them. And so that does a lot of things, but one of the things it does is increase the demands on consumer goods companies of all sorts, including dairy, 
for innovating to meet the needs of ever increasingly smaller niches of consumer. Is there an openness within that particular um, field? I know that companies are very loath to share when it comes to their recipes, but when it comes to the importance of sustainability in the circular economy, are, are we seeing companies collaborating more and being more transparent? Oh, that's a tough one. You're seeing some of it. The thing is, and this is in a way encouraging, eco-friendliness is a competitive advantage. Circular economy integration into your product line is a competitive advantage. There is some centralized movement around trying to increase standards across the board, some technology sharing across the board, but as of right now, there's no gold standard. The closest thing you see are uh, some of the recycling plants that are operating effectively as a third party, which are innovating and then sort of helping everyone, but it's a competitive advantage. And these companies work on very tight margins. And so there's some collaboration, but it's primarily between a large parent company and the firms or academic groups that they're working with. I'm not saying that cross-industry collaborations don't exist. That's a very important point I would like to make because they do. It's a community. And especially when you talk about things like the health of the planet, the community does come together, but that doesn't change that circular economy innovations do represent a competitive advantage. Obviously, we've been talking about things like the circular economy and packaging. Are there any trends that you're seeing emerge? But one of the broader trends that we're seeing is related to just what I was talking about before, SKU proliferation. And part of why you're seeing this increase in the number of people who are talking about disruption in a general sense is in part because the marketplace, as we're used to seeing it in the consumer goods arena, is fracturing. So where once upon a time, it would be difficult to imagine a disruption, now, every time you're able to corner a portion of a portion of a market, that becomes a form of disruption because you're able to target it, right? You're not necessarily fighting for the same kind of shelf space you used to because your ads can go right to the people who you think it should go to. Uh, people will order whatever your package, your package material is online. And so that's one side of it, right? You have this fractioned marketplace. On the other hand, you're seeing regulatory incentives, for lack of a better term, to innovate on things like logistics costs and on things like uh, sustainability, because governments are promoting directly through regulation some of these elements, right? That's the California regulation I mentioned before, just by way of example, but also things like increased logistics costs. You know, trucking rates aren't going down, they're going up, even with the price of oil being sort of as stable as it is. And in a homogenous marketplace, it's difficult for producers and uh, sellers to respond to those challenges. Because if there is an opportunity garnered by these regulatory or logistics challenges, it might not overcome the burden that is, I'm competing for shelf space on the margin. But when you're able to segment the consumer base down, 
then you have a little bit more margin to play with. Things aren't quite as cutthroat across the whole of the sector. And then you can get something which you can happily trumpet as disruptive, right? If it's a new cottage cheese that, what's a disruptive cottage cheese that has pop rocks in it, right? But by golly, you have found a couple of towns in northern New York where they just love that stuff and they ask for it online and you can ship it to them because you have this innovative packaging, then that is a kind of disruption, right? It's something different that could explode from that niche market into a bigger one. But, you know, of course, there is just a matter of overusing a word, right? It's like overusing innovation, disruption, some of these other elements where as a hallmark of success, you're in some degree in trouble if you don't use it. And so that we see that a lot. But, you know, sometimes disruption is being aware of a space that uh, you weren't necessarily paying close attention to that matters to your business, right? So for instance, AI, you don't think about AI a lot necessarily, although I'm sure many of your audience do think about AI when it comes to uh, sort of their packaging or their business processes. But because of innovations in the space, such as uh, soft robotics, AI, machine vision, just by way of example, when we're talking about increasing the number of SKUs or products, that dramatically increases the complexity that you must have on a logistics front if you're organizing these materials, shipping them, et cetera. And so some of these machine vision components, um, soft robotics is actually a good example of this. Uh, we actually have a report to this effect on uh, human-robot collaboration that a pre-scouter published a few months ago, which I may or may not have had a hand in. But in that report, we go through how some innovations in the robotics space are impacting not only logistics, but also the way that humans work and the way that humans work in the context of or around those machines. So uh, there's some really exciting stuff going on in a general sense. And because we have no weekly look at the global dairy markets this week, that's it. We still have several interviews already done. I've got a couple more in the pipeline, and I'm also hoping that there will be something next week from the show in France. And then I have to recover because I head to the Netherlands, where I'll be on a lot of trains and doing interviews about cheese, going to the Cheese Museum, and talking to a few different companies and organizations around the country. And I may even sneak in a football game as well, if I'm not too exhausted. I also thought, though, that they might not let me in with a huge backpack full of recording equipment, so I'm going to have to hope the train station has big luggage lockers. Either that, or I can try and convince them at the game that I'm in the media. Maybe interview spectators about their favorite cheese. Or maybe not. All right, I hope you enjoyed the show this week, and that you'll join us again next time. So, until then, have a great week. And thanks for listening.